This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to this week's edition of Radiotherapy, your show that covers all things to do with health and well-being. Hey, special thanks to those who came before us, Tim, Bron, Angeline, what a great morning. I was driving uh, myself up from Rye and so I got the full version of everything and boy did I enjoy it. Hey, we've got an action-packed show as usual for you. Trainer Wheels is joining us, our uh, regular, our medical student panel, a panellist, comes in and brings issues of relevance to those who are young and new in the field. Although um, Trainer Wheels has got a fairly serious topic she's talking about this week. She's talking a little bit about suicide and what we do to prepare medical students and help support them. We've got a couple of super special guests in. The first of our super special guests is Professor Julie Willis. Now, this is a slightly left-field guest for us on Radiotherapy. Julie is the Dean of the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning at the University of Melbourne. And she's got a special interest in all, pretty much everything to do with architecture, but in particular the history of architecture and and including the development of the modern hospital. So we thought we'd ask Julie to talk a little bit about buildings architecture and how they can influence our mood and behaviour. It's going to be fun. Next up in our special, super special guest category is Dr David Hipgrave. David is an international child public health expert who has worked pretty much all over the world, Asia, Africa, and in fact, more recently in Afghanistan. He is now with UNICEF in New York, but he pops across to Melbourne occasionally. And on this particular occasion, we nabbed him, brought him in the studio on a Sunday morning to talk about his work and how things are going. Finally with us is our young journalism student who gives us that sort of mm, media take on all matters health. We call him Dr Gonzo and he's going to tell us a little bit about social media and how some of the professional organisations are handling that. So sit back, relax, make a cup of tea, do whatever you need to and enjoy the next hour of radiotherapy. Just listen to this. And here we are, following our Doctor Doctor theme music, which we love. It gives us all a little chance to dance. Talking of dancing, Trainer Wheels, you're one of the top dancers in uh, Melbourne Medical School, aren't you? Don't people How say that? How did you know that? I saw, I, I saw it on Facebook. Someone posted. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> you probably, I've probably never seen you dance. No, I don't, I don't even think know you, if you can dance. <laughs> uh, I dance very enthusiastically, but with very little skill. Yeah, I fall over a lot. Mm. Professor Julie Willis, an expert on all things everything. To do with architecture. Welcome to the show this morning. Thank you very much. Have you ever come to talk on a health show before? No, not at all. Ah, that's so cool. <laughs> that's so cool. We're the first. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, people, you heard it here first. And Dr. David Hipgrave, you've, have you, you've been on this show before, haven't you, Dave? I have, a long time ago, yes. Was I here that day? No, you were not. Oh, what a shame. I'm Dr. Doolittle. It's not as much fun without me. That's, I'm the only person who believes that, by the way. <laughs> the, rest of the, the rest of the crew think it's better without me. Hey, uh... <laughs> That's true, isn't it, um, Trainer Wheels? Oh, no comment. No comment. <laughs> Young Dr Gonzo, I'm patting him on the back for those of you who are listening via the radio and can't <laughs> see this. Very descriptive, thank you. Um, how are you? <laughs> Very well, thank you. You? Haven't said, when were you last year? You didn't do our first show this year. I so wasn't. You... I was in uh, Indonesia. I was there on a fellowship. Um, Ooh. Uh, I know. What was the fellowship in? Uh, it was, I was working at a public relations company. Because you're doing combined journalism and... Um, and a business degree as well. And a business, right. Yes, but... Um, so a PR company in, in, in Jakarta? That's correct. I'm pretending I don't know, even though I read it on <laughs> Facebook. So I know all about it. And also I know your family and they've told me every, every minute of every day that you're away. So okay. did you have a fantastic time? Uh, it was terrific, yes, absolutely. It's um, certainly inspired me to do this 
uh, well, to come to the show to discuss social media because uh, in Indonesia and a lot of Southeast Asian countries, social media is extremely popular. The scalability is on the rise. A lot of cheaper devices and hardware are coming onto the market. So people who otherwise couldn't afford this terrific technology are now being able to access it. That's and amazing. Well, why don't we kick straight into it? Absolutely. Let's, go, let's segue beautifully from panel introductions and hellos okay. through to Indonesia and onto social Definitely. media. Definitely. Well, there's so on tell us what you're, on, what you're talking about this morning. Well, I was going to... Well, I am going to discuss uh, social media and the medical um, profession. Yep. Um, we do tend to forget um, Dr. Doolittle. That's... Uh, Ten years ago, the iPhone was released. And face, I know, I know. How did right? we even survive? <laughs> How did you get anywhere? Exactly. Well, you know, it's become so yeah. ubiquitous, we tend to forget that. And, and Facebook as well really only punctuated the mainstream, and I know that because that's probably when my dad started to use it as well. Is I, that well, t- 2011, 2012? It, it is so recent. You know, I was listening this morning. I, dri- yes, I, say, I was driving listening to Tim Thorpe, and he played some... Um, uh, oh, who's just died? Chuck Berry? Yes. Um, he played a, a run of Chuck Berry songs. And in particular, he was doing that one, you know, Memphis, Tennessee, I'm ringing the operator. He's, the, you know, he's talking about how he's ringing the operator trying to find news. And I was thinking, no one these days would know what that means. You know, when we grew up, not that long ago, when we grew up, if we needed information, we rang information on the telephone to get phone numbers, all that sort of stuff. You know, and it, it was, and I was thinking about it as I was driving in, you know, it's just not that long ago. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you with my excitement. No, it's it's very true, and as um and as a consequence, and I'm going to make a quick nod to you, trainers, be careful of those dancing videos because uh, whether it be your current employer, future patients, or whoever that may be, they could be they can easily access that, and it could. I want my patients on... to see me dancing. That I think they'll be even more yeah, enthusiastic about my care if they know I've got. That's true. Moves. Yeah, that that'll is just true. increase their esteem it, for our knowledge. It's, it's one of the many ways that people are using their social accounts because originally it was for connecting with your friends and your family etc and now it's been used as a professional tool so there is that one element to it which a lot of medical practitioners are using it for as a bit of a networking tool whether it's LinkedIn or Twitter Mm -hmm. they can access um, new reports whether it be on the news or any kind of articles that can help with their profession. Um, but it's also a good marketing tool. So I did t- take a quick look at your Twitter, actually, Dr. Yep. Doolittle. And uh, I must say, it's a bit, it's a bit dry. Oh, um, I don't it's like a bit dry. I've got to say, though, I don't like Twitter. I think Twitter's purely for politicians in the media, and That's I don't true. think it has any That's true. It's buy a bit into of a the public. So I only do it when I have to. Us in the media, we would refer mm. to it as a bit of elite kind of social media, yep. where mostly professionals and... People are highly educated. They kind of bicker amongst themselves. Mm. <laughs> but what did you think of my Facebook? What do you think of my Facebook, though? Your Facebook is much more entertaining. I like it. I see a little bit more of your... your I try and put a lot of health articles on that as well. Def- and and also we do the same through... This is actually an opportune time to plug uh, Radiotherapy on Triple R, which is our Facebook well, page, people. If you haven't uh, had the opportunity to look at it yet, as well as plugging the shows, we put lots of articles about it. Exactly. Health. And there's that kind of vertical integration that we mm. see with traditional media, whether we be radio or television who are starting to collate all this information and data. So all of a sudden, you know, an innocent tweet from yourself could appear on Q&A or from radiotherapy. They'll be sourcing, you know, different talent on Twitter or whatever that might be. So these are some of the applications that people are using social media for. Are there pitfalls? Um, Pitfalls? Well, there's the reputation side of things, whether it be some embarrassing kind of... um, uh, clips, etc. Um, but what's important is that people receive the education about what the um, expectations are for on social media. Um, the um, uh, Medical Board of Australia has set a, um, a policy 
um, which basically says, thou shalt not steal and, you know, don't make a fool of yourself and all those kind of basic kind of code of I'm conduct pretty, that we would expect. pretty good at not stealing, but I'm not, <laughs> not making a no, fool in, of in, yourself in, 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 in the sense of, That's like, um, don't false representation yeah. of your services, uh, testimonials as well, um, patient confidentiality is a very important one. That's a one. big one. That's something Huge that they one. hammer into us so at school. Exactly. So even if you're going to make a loose mm. nod to a patient, mm-hmm. if you mention the hospital even, mm-hmm. anything that can relate to a patient, um, you can get in big trouble. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's always struck me that social media... Um, a, a good analogy or a way to think of it is it's like learning a new language entirely. Definitely. And even though we think we're good at it early on, mm-hmm. there's so, you know, I, we, I, I just felt I made personally and I saw lots of other people make lots of mistakes in the first five years around some of these things. Definitely. And, um, and we could know, probably got, get away with it in those first five years because yeah, not as no many longer. people were on it. Yeah, absolutely. And also people were more forgiving because mm-hmm. they, you know, we're all making mistakes. Mm-hmm. Whereas now there's policies everywhere. So mm-hmm. if you do muck up, there are people who can come down. Yeah. I think the testimonial one's interesting too. You know, one one of the um, I interviewed recently um, Professor Cordner, Stephen Cordner, and he and um, Kerry Breen have just uh, released, with uh, lots of other people, I should add, have released this beautiful book on medical professionalism. And we were talking about that. It was I can't remember where it was I interviewed him, but he was great. He was though making just the comment on that testimonial issue. He said. Basically, 15 years ago, you couldn't do what you're doing, Dr. Doolittle. It would mm. have been considered self-promotion and advertising, yes. hmm. and it would have been not on, and you would have got, you know, you would have got some, uh, some letters from the medical board, essentially. Whereas now the whole, you know, people blatantly advertise now. Mm-hmm. You know, There's they, a couple yeah. of um, cosmetic surgery practices that are on Facebook and other social media, and I don't know how I feel about it, to be honest. Well, they're in okay. magazines, too. You know, they have mm. um, whole ads saying, you know, we do the best Before nose jobs, and et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah, 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 I, I think know. it's... Um, yeah, there's still rules around it, I think, but the rules are a lot softer. There are, but that's one element to it, certainly yep. on the marketing PR side of things. And then there's a more exciting element, which I wanted to talk about as well. Well, you so saved it for us. What's the exciting element? Well, the, you sort of <laughs> hold the end. I'm going to punch you the end. a little bit. Well, the exciting element is that it's a great... Um, uh, it's a great way in which to connect with various stakeholders. And you see it in organisations such as Beyond Blue, for example. Yep. They're actually creating these fantastic forums mm. which people can, who otherwise wouldn't have access to these services or who feel a bit shy or the stigma is a very large issue for people who want to access mental health services, yep. they can come to whether it be their Facebook page or whether it be all these different channels and they can actually communicate with like-minded people or with practitioners and make that first step to engaging with the help that they need. Um, some of the more exciting stuff, the Black Dog Institute as yep, well. That's, that's a Sydney version of yep, Beyond Blue, There's a joint project, and I think UNICEF as well, the United Nations, I think they have a project called Pulse, which they um, work with briefly in Indonesia, where they're actually starting to collect uh, social media data, and they're making these really fine correlations between the kind of, um, uh, how to say, emotional elements of a tweet, mm. collate that, and then they can start to measure the mood of, of a certain demographic. So they can say, oh, we're seeing these kind of tweets coming from this area, maybe they're a bit frustrated or angry or we're starting to see that people are, you know, a bit frightened from, you know... If some politician said this or there was a fire there. Hypothetically, and yeah. yeah. So but while, while, while that excites me, it also scares the Exactly. The and, this is, and this is why Cause the, the professional and academic control. and governance, yeah. these spheres need to come into place and set a proper framework in place, particularly privacy. Mm. That's a very big deal. Um, so there's a, a lot of clever heads, you know, that are trying to resolve this issue. But it does come down to a... Well, if there is a public service, if it does kind of outweigh the... Because a lot of people don't mind. I mean, you're publishing this information in the first place um, on these 
mm. accounts. Um, if this information is being used for a public benefit, then a lot of people, I'm not saying all, but a lot of people won't mind that data being used. And we see it every day, whether we, um, when we plug into uh, Google, for example, we see Google Now and, a, sorry, a dashboard, um, we'll see all this kind of information from data that's collected from our day-to-day, from our positioning, to the cafes we visit, to the trains we hop onto. I think we can trains safely we say we know to. it's not being used well. I mean, the American yeah. election is a case in point. We know that there was a whole lot of incorrect, fictitious stories published yes. um, that got lots of traction, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily published with any intent other than to uh-huh. make money, not you know necessarily trying to change the outcome, but there was a lot of people publishing stories to get dumb clicks that were nonsense stories, completely fictitious. So we know it's being misused. Mm-hmm. The issue is how do we regulate such um, an amorphous beast? Exactly. Going back to the, you know, it's still very young technology. You know, this is, it's still in its coming into its adolescence, really. Um, what we do need to do is kind of sort through the slush that is the internet. There's a lot of content. There's a lot of information which people see only on face value and think, ah, this is the real deal. So this comes into the whole fake news phenomenon where people all of a sudden are weighing the advice of a, you know, a charlatan online as professional advice or real facts compared to a doctor or a lawyer or somebody who's actually giving some, you know, professional insight. So to be able to sort through that information, the technology companies really do need to make a step up, stop acting like technology companies are more like media channels. With a social conscience. With a social conscience, absolutely. I, um it's fascinating. It's a real, you know, I'm loving it. I don't even think we're in adolescence. I reckon we're just, you know, maybe you entering toddlerhood at best. <laughs> you know, I still okay. see so much um, a sc- scope and potential for change. Anyway, we'll watch this space. Thanks so much, though, for coming in and giving us a, an update. No worries. We shall see you again soon. Enjoy your travels. Are you heading back to Jakarta? Um, in a few more months, but I'll be in um, uh, Melbourne finishing off my degree uh, for the next few months. Can I so give I you some advice? Please. Yes. Study. Just study hard. <laughs> Stop mucking around. Don't go to parties. Well, Don't do any of that I'll nonsense student stuff. Just I'll be get to your room with a book or okay. a computer. <laughs> take notes. Study. And that's brought to you with special mention right. from your father, who right. I happen to know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Doc. <laughs> hey, you're listening to Radiotherapy. It's 10.16 on a Sunday morning. You've just been listening to Dr Gonzo talk about um, social media and its professional relevance. You've got myself, Dr Doodle, Dr Trainer Wheels, our two special guests, Dr David Hipgrave and Professor Julie Willis. And straight after this short break, we're going to talk to Professor Julie Willis about architecture and how it might influence mood and behaviour. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You've got myself, Dr Doodle, Dr Trainer Wheels, Dr David Hipgrave from UNICEF in New York, but our special guest is Professor Julie Willis. She is a Professor of Architecture and the Dean of the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning at Melbourne University. She's an architectural historian and expert on Australian architectural history of the late 19th and 20th century, and her current research includes writing a new short history of Australian architecture, also examining the development of the modern hospital and the transmission and translation of architectural knowledge through professional networks in architecture. It's all very fascinating stuff, and you know, I was saying before in the intro, we've never really had an architect on the show, as far as I'm aware, someone will probably text in and correct me because I've been going for about 20 years um, to talk about this topic. But we brought Julie in particularly to say, to ask her the question and to tease it out. Can architect, architecture affect emotions? Hey, hi, Julie, before I jump into the question. All good? Yes, Dr. Doolittle. So uh, tell, tell us, let's um, get straight into the deep end. Let's dive, boots and all, I'm mixing my metaphors, into the deep end. Can architecture affect emotions? 
Absolutely it can. If you think about places like um, solitary confinement in a jail... Yep. We know Where I've been quite a few times, of yeah. course. Uh, it has a devastating effect on the people who are in that. And that's using the built environment to actually deprive people of not only liberty, but their a whole sense of, a set of senses. But on the other hand, if you go into a, a magnificent Gothic cathedral or the Hagia Sophia... The Taj Mahal. Something like that. These extraordinary spaces, which... So you walk in and you, you stop dead and you're completely overwhelmed by this place. You can imagine the peasants in the 14th century being uh, utterly convinced of God mm. by walking into these spaces. And they're the kind of extremes that you get. More locally, you could probably look at the steps of the Victorian Parliament House. Yes, I go past them most days. There's nearly always um, a wedding couple up there having photos taken. Do you feel invited to go up those steps? Or do you think it's a place that you don't belong ordinarily? See, I I don't know. I I would go for don't belong ordinarily a little bit. And interestingly, one of my aunts took me to lunch. You know, you can go to lunch. I didn't quite realise this. Took me to lunch there a couple of months ago. Um, And that was really intimidating too. Going through the, you know, you go through the building and there's all these guards who look incredibly officious. So, and you know, sort of look down the nose at you so a little bit. So the architects bit. designed yeah. it to be that way. Wow. So do you, where do you start then? Do you start with these are the emotions? I, I mean, mm. I imagine the brief is all sorts of things, how much money, what yeah. materials and stuff. But from the um, human aspect, do you start with that premise of what emotion am I trying to evoke and then figure out how you're going to do it? Or I think it really depends on the space. If it's, it's a, if it's a space of religious contemplation, absolutely. If, if, it's, if it's a toilet block, perhaps not. Uh, so it, it, it well, does that's, depend that's, that's on the That's one of the key places itself. of contemplation, <laughs> yeah. certainly for me. Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Train wheels, if you've got a question, I see you uh, <laughs> staring me down. I was just thinking, I like to feel happy when I'm doing a poo. I don't know about you. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. Besides <laughs> the point. Um, <laughs> um, so if... I think you. I think we all know that a building can affect your emotions, right? How does that change the way you would approach designing something like a hospital? So hospitals are really interesting spaces. They're they're actually large public buildings. They're a place. They're places where people come all the time, and they're not always patients. So mm. that's the first thing that we have to understand about hospitals. And hospitals have changed their philosophy over time, so I look at them from a historical point of view. Uh, We've had a really strong emphasis for a very long time on the curative capacity of medicine. So that has been sort of primary element and the the sort of preeminent place of the doctor. So the, the hospitals have been designed as a place in which the patient will get better without thinking about how the patient actually does get better mm-hmm. uh, and that they... Um, so we, we've seen things change. If we go back prior to uh, sort of common use of penicillin and other drug-based therapies that really come in in the 1950s and they sort of explode at this point in time, if you look at the hospitals that are designed in the 1920s and 1930s, there's a real emphasis on making patients feel better because there weren't the treatments huh. to actually make a big difference in, say, things like tuberculosis. Mm. So hence, like, the asylums that were all built in, they tended to be built in rural settings. Um, all the rooms tended to have a view of nature because yes. pretty much... the 
the thought was that people needed to get back to nature. So they were sent out. Also, people like to be isolated, so they move them away and take mm. them away from town. Was that... Is that what you're getting at, that sort of stuff? Oh, absolutely. But, the, the, I mean, there was also these studies that were done that showed that uh, the exposure to UV light actually improved. They could kill bacteria, so therefore right. exposure uh, of the patients to UV light would be a good idea. And the reality is we know that the production of vitamin D, yes, you do feel a little bit better if you've been enclosed mm. in space the whole time and you suddenly go out and get some sunshine, you feel better. So there are some uh, some elements to this that are true but it's it wasn't a cure and it couldn't cure completely it could make people feel better but it certainly had a healing intention absolutely so if we look at some of the hospitals that were built they all had balconies which had either doors or windows big enough in which beds could be wheeled Mm. out onto the balcony Mm. and the patients could be put out there for most of the day. Yeah, Alfred has balconies. They've been, you know, they're locked up off these days. You can't, I've I've never, I've worked there 16 years and never went on one. Hmm. Yeah. So then what changed around the 50s when medicine started working? Well, it working? is this idea that you could actually treat and cure people um, so that I, I would refer to it as a sort of subcutaneous t- treatment. A lot of the treatments prior to that were done to bodies, not from within bodies. And once you get this idea that you can, you can mostly cure someone by giving them a pill or some kind of infusion, uh, it really changes uh, the um, design of hospitals. They don't need balconies anymore. They don't need solaria. Um, which were sun balconies, uh, big ones. Yeah. Uh, you don't need the same kind of physical therapy uh, treatment spaces that they're also using, uh, and they all close up. They, it's, mm. it's also a rise of air conditioning, and so they uh, close all the windows, um, and and so they go down to the sort of isolationist, uh, keeping patients separate, making sure that infection control was uh, thought about, uh, to the loss of the patient. I Did they argue. become very austere and functional and just purely oh, practical? Because it's course. my sense. Mm. Well, it's fashionable at that time. The yep. modern architecture comes. In. It's this idea that you can have these sort of pure spaces that are unadorned. You don't need any of that sort of uh, fancy bits and pieces. You just make it functional and utilitarian. Mm. And you get these spaces that work very well for a period of time. But there's something that's lost in that. See, our last two hospitals that I'm f- very familiar with, I love hospitals, I'm a hospital junkie, but um, uh, obviously the Royal Children's and Peter Mac, which yep. both seem to have completely changed the whole mm. focus from, you know, when you walk from, like, I'm thinking before that, maybe St V's is pretty new. That's like 15, 20 years old now. Um, you know, that was still fairly functional. And the, the, one of the reasons I wanted you to come in today is because, you know, I really noticed it about whatever it was. I don't know how many years ago now the children's open. Five years, must be. Something like yeah, and, the, and so I went to do give myself a guide at my own tour. And I went for a walk at about 7 in the morning because I just wanted to go and see how the, you know, hospital was waking up and what it looked like. And I hadn't been in. And I walked in for the first time. And I've got to tell it was the first time I've worked into a hospital and I've just thought to myself, I had that mild sense of awe, but, you know, it was a weird feeling. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, if I was walking in here with my sick kid, I would genuinely feel I'm in a place Mm. of world expertise. It just, you know, it just looked professional and it looked like, wow, you wouldn't build a hospital like this unless you were doing really good work. And I think if you really cared too, right, the people designing the hospital, the whole hospital just gives this feeling of, oh, they really give a shit. 
Damn. They're going to try Damn. really Damn hard. word you're up yeah, to. Definitely, then. that was what I want to say. Yeah. <laughs> you can say whatever word you like. It's triple R. <laughs> I'm just teasing you. Yeah. Well, there's this different... You know, any new hospital is going to encourage that belief that this is cutting edge and it's it, you should believe in the place. Mm. So there is something about newness that really encourages patients to think that this is a great place. Mm. Uh, but the Royal Children's Hospital is a really great example of some of the things that you can actually achieve. Um I'll introduce you to the concept of wayfinding, which is how, wayfinding. how someone navigates from one point to another. And in hospitals, this is actually quite important because they're really complex programs mm. and people have got to go in lots of different ways. And, of course, if they have to constantly ask someone where to go, mm. yep. they feel disempowered in that journey. Mm. Now, the great thing about Royal Children's Hospital is most people don't need to ask where they have to go. Really? It's really quite obvious where they go. There's this very large atrium space and you, you're drawn into it. Giant and, fishing. And the they giant. call it Main Street, don't they? Something, something like that. And that's quite common. That's, a, that's an idea that comes from the States okay. uh, where you sort of... Hospitals as malls, mm. which is a bit scary. Mm-hmm. But um, it, you're drawn into the space and then there are these really large anchor points that are really identifiable. So the huge fish tank what my young son calls the butterfly, which is a really large sculpture, and the meerkats down at the end of yeah. our patients. And adults and kids alike navigate through these um, spaces by going, oh, I know I need to go to the fish cat tank and then I go down a bit and across. Yep. And they just don't need to ask anyone. Hmm. So this empowerment of the patients and their families to feel as though they have some kind of control in the space is really, really important. And so that's just one of the things that the RCH manages to wow. do in its architecture. And, you know, just it's giving me the giggles just remembering this, but you remember all the coloured lines we used to follow? So you'd yeah. go to the entrance, so to, talk about wayfinding was that the yeah. phrase wayfinding you know you'd go to the entrance and you'd say to the lady um it was always a lady there and she'd give you advice you'd say i want to get to outpatient so okay follow the red line and, you'd, and there are all these colored lines Can you I just followed the line it's like you're in a once the line is on the ground wayfinding has failed yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what about the new peter mac Oh, that's another really interesting example of how architecture can change change the way we think about buildings, uh, hospitals, uh, and encourage patients or at least make it them feel as though that this is a great place. Um, <clears throat> I, under- I haven't been into the, the deep bowels of Peter Mac, um, but I understand, I've seen some photos that suggest there's been some really interesting things. So uh, I think in um, at least one of the treatment suites there is a overhead skylights that show gum leaves and things like yeah, that. Yeah, they've got that sort of stuff in and in the cafe too. So, and yeah. it's like, you know, it looks like a sort of a TV of the size of the MCG sort of TVs. Just So there's this big wall with, you know, sometimes it's waves, sometimes yes. it's um, a forest. And it, you know, it's, it's quite amusing. So even though even they're sort of small gestures, they're actually acknowledging that uh, patients ha- want to have a connection to the outside. They want to feel as though normal life is going on uh, and that they... Um, that they're cared for. They, they, the person, are cared for, not just them as a sort of a diseased person. Mm. Just um, let you know what we're doing, everyone. You listen to Radiotherapy. It's 10.33. We're talking to Professor Julie Willis about architecture, architecture and its influence on behaviour. On the panel is myself, Dr Doolittle, Dr Trainer Wills, and our special guest from New York who we'll be speaking to soon, Dr David Hipgrave. David, you've got a question I can see. You're leaning forward. Yeah, I'm keen to know whether... Uh, as uh, an academic in architecture, you're seeing a trend towards um, 
design of public spaces and the built environment for population health, and I'm thinking particularly for um, reducing the risk of overweight and high mm. blood pressure and uh, diabetes uh, through getting people moving more and, uh, and less reliant on public transport. Certainly this is a really... It's a hot topic at the moment because we realise that if we design neighbourhoods badly, it completely disencourage, disencourages people to, to move in the way they should be. So if, if the easiest option is to get in your car, that's what you do all the time. Uh, but if it's straightforward and it's simple, uh, if you encourages walking or catch it, getting on your bike, that's a great way of gaining passive exercise and, um, in fact, builds community, gets people out on the streets, feeling uh, owning those streets, making sure that there's surveillance on the streets so kids can go out mm. uh, and then you get this environment which is, in, is set by how the built environment is designed and planned um, that means we get a greater stronger community and health benefits that come from that. Hey, um, I just want to ask you one final question before we uh, have, go to a break and uh, come back. And I'm hoping you'll stay with us, of course, to keep chatting about things. But, you know, I was thinking, what would be the most stressful architecture job? And it's got to be designing the architecture building at Melbourne Uni. Um, <laughs> how horrible would that be? But the only thing is, you know, I went, I went to meet um, Julie there and uh, it's really, really amazing. But as the dean... Like, do you ever walk in and say, oh, I got, I got that bit wrong. That really annoys me. Oh, I like that bit. Um, you know, <laughs> what's I, I, it like? I have to say, yes, it has to be one of the worst commissions an architect gets <gasps> is to design for a bunch of architects yeah. because we all critique each other all of the yes. time. And, indeed, that is the case, Dr Doolittle. I do walk in and go, look, this is wonderful. I love this space. By God, couldn't we do something about that bit? <laughs> but that goes for every single building I walk into. Right. It doesn't matter. It's the same reaction as to whether it's the one I'm occupying or the one I just happen to be visiting. Before you judge us too harshly at Triple R, remember, this was a shoestring budget paid for by volunteers. No. Hey, thanks for um, telling us so much um, about architecture and mood. It's so fascinating. I reckon we've got to get you back to talk more about this. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. On the show this morning, we've been talking about lots of stuff. You've got uh, Dr Trainer Wheels over there. She's got a segment coming up about suicide and doctor's health. Myself, Dr Doolittle, we've just been talking to Professor Julie Willis from the um, Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning at Melbourne Uni. But now we turn our attention to Dr David Hipgrave who is an international child public health expert with extensive experience in Africa and Asia. And as I was saying before, he's just been to Afghanistan, so I'll ask him about that too. David trained in medicine and paediatrics here in Melbourne, probably at the Royal Children's Hospital, but probably the old building, before completing a PhD studying the introduction of hepatitis vaccine to Vietnam. His medical career has taken him all over the world. He's worked for a couple of years as a district health officer in the African country of Malawi, seven years at the Burnett Centre and the university focusing on vaccine vaccine preventable and communicable disease control in Vietnam and other countries of the Mekong region. Um, but in 2004, he joined UNICEF, managing a diverse range of health and nutritional activities oh, in various places, I think mainly, though, in Indonesia and China, although no doubt he will tell us some. That's long enough. I've got more stuff, you know, David, but you're just too impressive and it's embarrassing <laughs> me. It's embarrassing me. It's embarrassing everyone who's listening. It's embarrassing us all. Hey, uh, welcome to the show, Thanks formally, even though we've said hello a couple of times sure. already. Yes, thanks. It's nice to be here. Oh, it's great to have you um, in one of your sojourns back to Melbourne. Hey, um, tell us what, what it drew you to international 
um, public health. It's it's for me. It's the James Bond. It's the glamour. It's glamorous, but no one knows what it is. What drew you to work in the area? <laughs> Thanks. I'd love to be uh, imagined as a James Bond character in this uh, area of work. But uh, no, I mean, when I trained in paediatrics, I was looking at the career options. Uh, you know, suburban paediatrics, hospital paediatrics, or do something that uh, deals with more children at one time. So instead of having a constituency of one or a ward, um, I was interested to try and do uh, to try and use my skills for populations of children. Um, and obviously, the best way to do that is for the children, for the child populations that need those skills most, and those are predominantly the poor and the underprivileged kids that UNICEF focuses on, um, and that you can uh, deal with in international child health. So that's uh, so I sought opportunities in in uh, in that area. Oh, it's an amazing area. You know, growing up, of course, you know, we all heard just stories of famine in Africa and child health problems that were just massive all over the world yeah. and it seemed insurmountable. Where are we at now? What are the main issues, the main challenges facing yeah, um, international a, child health? That's a great question. Um, you probably know that we've shifted from the Millennium Development Goal era to the Sustainable Development Goal era. That change occurred in 2015-16, you'd say. Um, so there's less focus now on... Um, on child mortality, although there's still a, an unfinished agenda of child mortality, but during the MDG era from the years 1990 to 2015, there was a halving of the numbers of child deaths, which obviously means a dramatic decline in the rate of child death as well. So there was some, it wasn't as successful as people hoped, but it, uh, there was uh, good progress on child mortality. So the, the big thing now is that um, there's a focus on not only survival, but also thriving. Um, so part of the global strategy on children's, women's, women's children's and adolescents' health is uh, survive, thrive and transform. So there's survival, um, well-being of children, so making sure kids grow well and are uh, stimulated and have um, good potential. And then there's transforming of societies to be more focused on child well-being and, uh, and long-term outcomes for children. Wow. Wow. <laughs> um, I feel it seems so big, doesn't it? Yeah, Sorry, it does. Jess, I could see you were shell-shocked Yeah, I just don't second. even know where to go from there, honestly. Um, I feel like we hear a lot about infectious diseases in developing nations. Yeah. Is that still a focus in child health or is there more of a focus now if it's about thriving? Is there also a focus in the non-communicable diseases? Well, we're in a transition period where it's, there's still a focus on both those things or there is a focus on both those things. So um, H, um, sorry, uh, pneumonia, uh, malaria, diarrhoea are still the biggest kill killers of children. There's no question. We are making progress um, uh, on HIV transmission. Um, tuberculosis is still a problem, of course. But in many countries now, um, there are kids who survive the newborn period, which is where the majority of child, young child deaths still occur. Um, so they survive that period, but then they grow up short. And um, as they get older, they're often overweight as well. Um, they may have um, lost... Um, a, let's just say they've lost a bit of potential because of poor nutrition um, or because of uh, poor stimulation during their early years of life. And so... Um, you know, those are the kinds of things which are now big uh, items on the agenda for child health, not only survival, but also those uh, preparation things for kids to be um, healthy and good uh, um, contributors and good, have, a good economic prospect, have good economic prospects as well. So uh, th this is also another thing that's a big transition in um, global child health is uh, a move from vertical disease 
uh, focused programs to um, programs that focus on a, a more like a continuum of care. Uh, and the continuum actually begins before conception uh, throughout mm-hmm. pregnancy and then in the early years of life and then through to another major transition in um, global child health, which is a recognition of the importance of adolescence on, um, on, on, as, a, as a period of life for uh, good uh, outcomes for uh, health generally. David, I, I want to pick up on this issue. You've just noted that adolescence is a different phase from childhood. What sort of age ranges are we talking about? And if you're talking about public health, where do you get your biggest bang for your buck? I mean, is it is it right at that newborn um, toddler stage or is it right through that continuum you've talked about? So if you're still looking at survival, the biggest bang for the buck is unequivocally in the first 48 hours of life mm. or even just before delivery because uh, stillbirth is still a major problem mm. um, and much of that is uh, associated with poor management of um, maternity care, uh, of delivery care. Um, but if you are... Um, if you're looking more broadly, more globally at, ch- at child health, then I-, I think it's probably that first few years of life altogether when you're looking at um, nutrition, uh, sorry, survival, nutrition, and then um, uh, child development, psychological development um, to uh, improve children's best prospects in the long term. And this is still very much a downstream issue for many countries, particularly the poorest countries, where they're still focusing predominantly on survival. But in many countries where you know survival was a major problem even as recently as 10 years ago and I'm thinking of India and uh, China and some of the other enormous countries, still Nigeria, etc. They're, they're really starting to think um, how can we help kids to be um, uh, economically productive and healthy th- for the long term. David, you know, I was just reflecting on your uh, you know, opening statement about how you like doing big populations and I, I was interested to hear that you've recently been in Africa Afghanistan. Yeah. So I was wondering, you know, how do you keep the connection between these big programs you do sitting in big offices in the biggest city in the world to actually keeping that connection to the people you're helping? So I'm wondering, you know, do you actually get to see kids who are benefiting from your program and what were you doing in Afghanistan? So that's a great question. Afghanistan's a good question to ask that about because because of the security issue, it's difficult for um, us as international staff to actually get direct contact with the patients. It was possible to go to the field um, in a couple of places, but mostly we rely on the national staff, the um, Afghan, Afghan staff in that country or the, in that uh, situation. But in other countries, it is easier to get out and um, see the communities where our programs um, benefit. And, of course, we don't implement things directly almost anywhere. It's usually through government or sometimes other development partners who are doing the work with us. Um, but uh, when you, you know, if you're asking, uh, do we have global priority programs that we, we try and implement around the world? Well, yes, one of the um, uh, biggest priorities now is community health, a recognition that uh, child health is not just about hospital care, but also about um, good preventive care and, and also making uh, treatments available for kids within their own community and engaging with those communities to give priority to um, well ch- uh, to uh, good child health. Um, and so, yes, a lot of the um, staff who work in countries and, and sometimes the ca- staff who work in uh, regional offices or headquarters will travel out to the communities and we'll get to see um, uh, the work that we do and the benefits that it's bringing. Hey, um, just we're going to go to a break, but just 
I just wanted to point people. If people want to find out more about UNICEF, what's the best place? What's the website? So example? there's a website in Australia, which is unicef.org.au, but yep. the, the global website is unicef.org. Um, and the global website, I think it's actually undergoing a bit of a uh, renovation, but there's still a lot of information on there. Um, and uh, you can look up specific programs or find out. UNICEF doesn't just work in health. It's uh, also education and um, child protection. Yeah, work, I was surprised at the breadth when I looked. And don't forget, whenever you're giving your coins on a plane, that's going to UNICEF as well yeah. as many other ways yeah, you can raise the money for them. Program. They're an amazing organisation. Yeah. Thanks. Three, triple, ah. And you're all listening to Radiotherapy. Everyone's laughing at me during the gap because they said I'm running out of words. Normally towards the end of the hour, my brain starts to fade, so apologies to everyone in the whole world, whether you're <laughs> listening or not. It's just I'm going overboard now. Hey, let's get on to our last segment. You're listening to Radiotherapy. Uh, it's Sunday morning. And um, Dr. Train Wheels, you're going to tell us a little bit about... Um, your experience as a medical student uh, with the university addressing the issue of doctor of doctor health. Yeah, so what inspired this is there was a bit of news this week about um, junior doctors especially taking their own lives. It came out this week that four junior doctors have committed suicide in the last six months in Australia. Really? In the last six months? Yeah, it's pretty horrendous. Um, so I thought I'd talk just a little bit about the, that issue. That, I mean, there's heaps of stats about it, so we could talk about that for hours, so we won't do that. Um, but from my personal experience, I'll talk a bit about what the uni's trying to do to fix it, and we can chat a bit about that, which I think is interesting. Um, so I'll start with a little bit of stats, because it is interesting. We like stats, don't we? Um, Not really, but we'll do it anyway. <laughs> Just give us the extent of the problem. Sure. So Beyond Blue did a big study in 2013 where they surveyed thousands of doctors and medical students and they found that one in five medical students and one in ten doctors had had suicidal thoughts in the previous year leading up to the survey. I don't think I've written here what the normal stats are for the general population, but it's a lot more. It's much higher than the general population. Do you know, do little off the top of your head, how many people would... Well, they asked very specific questions in that survey. I Uh remember at the time we covered it quite a bit, so it's hard to get general to generalise. But... Um, it, look, that does seem very high, mm. and we know that nearly all professional groups are quite high. The main mm. reason we know that is everyone's always surprised. So people do studies all the time, mm. and the reality is it comes out different groups in every country. So you can, oh, it's dentists here, it's anaesthetists <laughs> there, it's architects there. But the reality is being a professional um, has a whole lot of stresses, which surprises people. They think mm. that it's it's the good life. And so that's why a lot of these um, studies come out. But that's very high. One in five medical students, that shocked everyone at the time yeah. when that um, result came out. It's, it's scary, especially in the context that we all know of suicides amongst medical students That's right. and junior doctors. Yeah, and they found that medical students and female and young doctors were the most at-risk groups in the survey. Um, so, you know, that was really exciting for me, being a medical student and a woman, and soon I'll be a female junior doctor. So I'm really excited about my future. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, you know what? You know what? There, there. You know what? All jokes aside, uh, can I just make a little bit... Can I just remind... You know, because this is a distressing topic, and it is distressing and so excuse us if we relieve our tension by cracking jokes that's just what we do on radiotherapy but it doesn't mean we're not taking this topic seriously and doesn't but um the whole point of that statement you make though jess is that you've got to prepare you know you exactly. you know you're entering into a high-risk profession you got to prepare dr trainer wheels that's exactly right calling you by your wrong name <laughs> that's exactly um, yeah. right and so, you know, go, I mean, you know, so i was in my first year last year and the first week of uni was a sort of 
you know, orientation week type thing. And I, I joked to my partner at the time every day I came home, he said, how's your day? I said, oh, yeah, you know, they told us a hundred times not to kill ourselves. Because really that's what the whole week was. It felt yeah. like the whole week was really preparing oh, our mental health and telling us it's okay to talk to each other and look out for your friends and here's the things we have in place for you and, you know, one in five of you are, will want to kill yourselves and all this horrendous stuff. Um, and that's been continuing throughout the course as well. So this year we have um, a community and wellbeing officer, I think is their professional title. And they come out to our clinical schools once or twice a week or something and we can make appointments to see them. But there's, I mean, there's this, still this problem of the stigma associated with mental illness. And I don't know if it's worse among healthcare providers or if it's the same as the rest of the population, but there's, there's a bit of a fear that I think... In the, the Beyond Blue survey certainly found this too, that there's fear that looking, get, trying to get help will make your prospects of getting a job worse and your colleagues will look down on you, things like that. And I don't know how true those attitudes are, but if people think the attitudes are out there, that's probably just as bad, really. Well, you know, we, we've gone through an era... We've gone through relatively... Ra- talking about rapid changes like social media earlier in the program, we've gone through a rapid change with our attitudes to suicide too. So 30 years ago, if we went up... To, people didn't want us to mention it. They didn't mm. even like us asking it. They didn't want us to research the area because they thought we'd put the idea into people's heads. So if we fronted up to an ethics committee and we said we wanted to do a project around suicide, they'd say, you can't ask that. You'll give them the idea. Mm. Um, and then we've moved beyond that. And we were in a period where the media wouldn't talk about it um, because, again, it was felt that you'd trigger um, copycat suicides. But, of course, we were faced with the classic dilemma that if we don't talk about it, people won't know about the problem. It's the su- more, twice as many people die from suicide as die from car accidents. It's the commonest cause of death up to the age of 45 for men and women. Yeah. Um, if we don't get those messages out there, we'll never convince government to do anything. So say in Australia did a whole program around how to report suicide in the media and how to be sensible about it and also, you know, mentioning things like Lifeline and Beyond Blue that we'll do at the end of this little segment. Um, so we're just sort of getting out of that. I don't think doctors as a group, professional group, and not so much, nurses are better at it, I reckon. Mm. I don't think we've moved on. Sports people now come out and talk about their depression and Mm. talk about it quite frankly. James Hurd was in the Herald Sun last week talking about his experience Mm. of of, um, mental illness and going into hospital. You still, how many doctors have you heard stand up publicly and talk about it? I I can't think of any. No, and so I think you're quite right. I think currently people are still a little bit nervous and and I think the universities are dipping their toe in the water, but... um, I think we've got to up our game still. That's Naturally, right, we've yeah. all got to keep up. We our were game. encouraged to do a mental health first aid course, which I thought was going to be about handling patients with severe mental illnesses, but it was actually more about looking after our classmates and colleagues, yeah, um, looking out for each other and telling them where they can get help. And on that note, if you're a doctor or medical student who feels like you need some help, Beyond Blue have a doctor's mental health program, um, so you can look that up and, and get some help there. Beyondblue.org.au. Um, that's right. Um, AMSA, the Australian Medical Students Association, have also produced a booklet called Keeping Your Grass Greener, which is all about looking after your mental health as a medical student, and I'm sure a lot of that would be relevant for junior doctors and doctors as well. And, of course, Beyond Blue, you can ring them on 1300 22 or Lifeline is always available too on 13 11 14. And a lot of the professional groups now are starting to address this issue. So there's, there's, we've had VDHP in um, Melbourne for a long time. The Victorian Doctors' Health Program mm. pretty much just gets any doctor with any drug or alcohol or mental health problem, bang, straight into care. The lawyers are looking at it. Um, nurses have been doing similar programs for a while too. Lots of other professional groups are starting to take this more seriously. But, um, but uh, you know, it's still just such a, a, a an area you know, that we don't know whether we're getting the right balance between education, care, support, and what the right messages are. We talk about first aid all the time, and by first by psychological first aid, essentially we mean paying attention to sleep, exercise, 
nutrition, which includes watching out for alcohol and decreasing caffeine, stress and giving people stress-solving problem techniques, and then relationships, helping people understand the relationships in their life that are good and bad, make most of the good ones, make least of the bad ones. That's psychological first aid. Do they do they get to that sort of detail with you in the course, Trainer Wheels? It was actually more about if you are worried about a friend, don't, you know, be confident to ask them. That's another important okay. aspect because... But I, I think self-care, you know, it's like on a, on a plane when the um, oxygen masks fall down, put your own on before mm. you put down someone else's. But, yeah, that is also important. Hey, um, fascinating and important um, area. Thank you for bringing that to our attention, Dr. Trainer Wheels. Pleasure. We're going to do our wrap-up and hand you over to the uh, geniuses at Einstein and Gogo who are rounding up out there in their white coats with their microscopes and their bugs that they're staring at and pulling the wings off. Um, <laughs> um, hey, thanks, Professor Julie Willis. Dean of Architecture, um, Planning and Building. I got that the wrong way around. Architecture, Building and Planning at University of Melbourne. Thank you, Dr. David Hipgrave from UNICEF in New York for telling us all about international child health. As usual, thanks, Dr. Trainer Wheels. You've been listening to Radiotherapy. If you want to know more, go onto our Facebook page, Radiotherapy at Triple R. Um, you can also get our podcast. But if you want to get really smart, listen to these scientists. I feel that if people are not too embarrassed to take off their clothes to wash the genitals with soap and water, literally with people they don't know and will never see again... Ooh, whole business still turns me off. It all sounds a little sick to me. Be a little tolerant. Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.